Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be there today as we talk about these everyday uh, issues that disciples of Jesus face. And what we wanted to do with this series is, is to say, okay, what are the kitchen table issues of discipleship? What are the things that when the rubber meets the road and we are, you know, tasked with this call to go into the world and live like Jesus in the world, in the everyday stuff of life, what does that look like? And, and so today I want us to look at our everyday rhythms and routines, what we might call our daily grind, those things that happen every day and every week. Where's God in the midst of that? And how are those rhythms forming us to be more like Jesus? Let me tell you about um, my baseball team that I coach. Uh, I've got a little uh, 12U baseball team uh, that I'm trying my best to coach and trying my best to help these boys understand baseball and sportsmanship. And um, to this point, it has been a lot of lessons in character development. Um, And so I I think I'm a better preacher than I am coach. And I just want you to say that's not saying a whole lot. Um, but, but I think we're making progress, and uh, several of the boys also attend church here. And, uh, and so we had practice early Wednesday afternoon, and uh, the, several of the boys wanted to come to Wednesday night church uh, to be with the preteen group. And so I loaded up my Honda Pilot after being out in the hot sun all afternoon. I, I loaded up my Honda Pilot with seven uh, adolescent boys and... Uh, we were all sweating, and we had all the signs of young men who had been out there sweating and running and, and learning the game of baseball for about two hours, and there was a certain odor in the car, as you might imagine, and we, we got here to church and had a good night, and, and then I, I, the boys all went home, and I, I got home, and, and that odor was lingering just a little bit. I wish I could tell you it smelled like winning. Um, but it just, it just smelled like 12-year-old boys uh, in my Honda Pilot. I said, man, I can't, I can't send Lauren out in, in a car like this, and I don't have time to clean it. So I did the next best thing. I went inside, and I got this little product that comes in real handy. It's called Febreze. Maybe you've heard of it, or maybe you've used it. I wish I could say it cleaned my car. It didn't, but it did mask the smell. That's kind of the amazing thing about Febreze. And let me tell you the backstory about Febreze. Uh, Procter & Gamble launched this product in 1996, and they thought they had stumbled onto something really great. Uh, a scientist in the research department had developed a chemical of some kind, and, and I want to share the name with you, hydroxypropyl beta-cyclodextrin, okay, or HPBCD for short. Um, and, and somebody was smart enough to come up with that chemical compound, um, but it really was a practical nature that, that led him to develop this. He was a smoker, and he wanted a way to cover up the smell of cigarette on him, and so he came up with this compound, and sure enough, it neutralized odor, and so it brought whatever you were smelling to, to a, a neutral scent where you didn't smell anything. They thought, this is going to be great. This is going to eliminate bad odors. This is going to be, this is going to sell like hotcakes. And so they launched Febreze in 1996. And wouldn't you know it, the appeal of neutralizing odor 
just wasn't very appealing. People didn't buy it. It, it. If you look at sales in 1996, it really bombed. And so they, they, they went back to the drawing board and, you know, Procter and Gamble being the great marketers that they were, like, they, we've got to unlock the secret here. We've got to figure this out. Why did this product fail? And so they sent a group of researchers in and uh, they sent them to the person who would need Febreze the most, the local cat lady. True story. A lady had nine cats living in her home, and they thought, if anybody needs Febreze, it's the local cat lady. And so they, they sat down with her, went into her house, and this smell of feline everything just hit them as they walked into the door. And they said, hey, for two months, we want you to try this product. It's going to make your, it's going to neutralize the odors in your house. It's going to cover up the smell of, of, of any cat or whatever. And we want you to use it and tell us what you think. Tell us what you like and what you don't like about it. And so they returned two months later. They gave her all the Febreze she wanted. They returned two months later, knocked on the door. They opened the door, and the smell of cat just hit them again. They thought, man, what in the world is going on? Did our product not work? And they said, hey, um, so, so what's going on? Like, why didn't you use the product? And she looked at them, and she said, I don't need Febreze. My house smells great. She said, what smell? What are you talking about? But she had lived in that so long. She had become so accustomed to it and so used to it. She had no idea that she had any kind of odor to cover up. So another team of researchers worked with a completely different demographic. It was people who had super clean houses and they cleaned their house all the time. And what they found is that people really liked Febreze when they added a little scent to it, like lemon fresh or country spring. And so after they would clean up a room, just as a finishing touch, as just a little accent, they would go into the room and just add a little country spring in and add a little lemon fresh to my already tidy house. And they discovered that when they added the country fresh and the lemon spring, the product sold like hotcakes. People wanted to take what was a, a, a neutral space and make it smell just a little bit better. So they, they cracked the code. In 1998, they began to add flavors to Febreze, and consequently, it sells in the millions and continues to sell very well today. But I tell you that story to say, what if we are like the cat lady. Like, What if we, and when you look at our spiritual lives, what if we are so in our daily grind, so in our daily routine, we have the things that we do, the, the places that we go, the rhythms that we keep, we are so in the midst of that, and these habits that form our regular routine, they are out of alignment with the ways of Jesus, and we don't even notice it. What if we don't even notice the habits that are keeping us from becoming more like Jesus? It's important that we understand that our everyday habits, our regular rhythms, they can contribute to our spiritual growth or they can deter from our spiritual growth. This really snapped into focus for me because I was introduced to this, this book by an author named James Clear. 
Isn't that a great name for a self-help author? James Clear. Like you would never buy a book from somebody named like Jimmy Opaque. You wouldn't want that. Give me James Clear. That guy can clearly tell me how to change my life. And so James Clear, I thought it was funny. James Clear, James Clear wrote this book called Atomic Habits. And he unlocks something about human nature that we can apply to our spiritual life. What he says in his book about atomic habits, and the thesis of the book is that we can make small incremental changes in our daily life. We can get 1% better every day, and we can ultimately achieve our goals by changing our habits. And one of the principles that he builds this thesis on is this, and I want to share it with you. You will never rise to your highest goal. You will always sink to your lowest habit. I want you to think about human nature. I want you to think about what we're able to accomplish. We sort of have this backwards. If we see something that's out of alignment in our life or something that we want to change, the first thing we do is we set a goal. We think about a vision of who we want to become or what we want to do. And so we set that goal, and we think that by naturally setting that goal, that we're going to naturally just rise to the occasion. But what Clear says is, no, it's just the opposite. Yeah, you, you can set that goal, but that goal is going to be, that goal, you're never going to achieve that goal if you don't change your systems and your habits and your routines. You're always going to sink to your lowest habit. Habits push us up better than goals pull us up. Now, I think Clear is right, which is why I'm sharing it with you. But, there is both a caution and a promise that I would add to, to this principle. Let's deal with the caution first. The first caution I would add, or the primary caution that I would add in, in, in kind of leaning into this principle, is, is this. That there are things in life that do not require divine grace. There are things in life that do not require divine grace. You do them by your own strength. Those are not the things that we deal with in here. If you want to go somewhere where you hear about things you can do in your own strength, there are self-help seminars, there are all kinds of things that you can do and you can benefit from them, but we are a people of grace. But these things that you do by your own strength, you can achieve them. You can run a half marathon, you can lose 20 pounds, you can lead a winning team at work, you can build a logistics network, you can pitch a baseball, you can shoot a golf score lower than your previous golf score, you can eat healthy, you can pay off debt, you could save up three months of living expenses, you could do this crazy thing like show up on time to work, you could do this crazy thing like show up to work. Um, you, these are things that you can do on your own strength. You can do them on your own strength. The, you, they're noble goals, they're fun goals, some of them are professional goals, but they are all well within your capacity to change. And there are self-help people who can help you do that, and communities of people who can help you do that. And the caution of this principle is thinking that the transformation of our lives to become more like Jesus is a project of human nature. 
that, that somehow we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and we can look in the mirror and recognize that our life is not like Jesus. Okay, so what do we have to do to make our life more like Jesus? We're going to do X, Y, and Z just like we do X, Y, and Z to run a half marathon. The caution is thinking that we can become more like Jesus on our own strength. The truth of the matter is that we become more like Jesus. We are transformed into, in, into the image of Christ by God's grace. It is God's grace that transforms us and, and changes us. And so that's the caution. But now here's the promise of this principle. The promise is that when the people of God surrender their daily routines and their habits to the Lordship of Christ, these habits become a, a means of grace for our spiritual growth. That, that Think about surrendering your, your daily life, your daily routine, the things that mark your, your waking hours. Think about those things surrendered to the Lord and brought into, the, into alignment with what God wants for your life and infused with divine grace, think about you participating with God in what He wants to do in your life. Think about how those things can become a means of God's grace and can form and shape you into the image of Christ when surrendered to His Lordship. That's the great promise or potential of recognizing how habits can push us up especially when surrendered, or only when surrendered, to the Lordship of Christ. So there's an example of this that happens in the early church. It's Acts chapter 2. So let me set the scene for you. If you're unfamiliar with this part of the story of Jesus, Jesus has resurrected. He's met with the disciples. He's given them a commission to go into the world. He says, go and wait for the gift that I'm going to give to you. And then Jesus ascends. And the gift that he promises is his Holy Spirit. And so the church is assembled, they're waiting, they're praying, and the day of Pentecost comes, and the Holy Spirit falls upon the church. And 120 believers who previously were scared, they were afraid of the same people who crucified Jesus, they were afraid that they were going to do it to them as well. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, they depart the upper room, and they begin to proclaim the goodness of God. And remember Peter, who denied Jesus? He's preaching this sermon. He's weaving together all these Old Testament texts and he's sharing about how Jesus is the fulfillment of them. And 3,000 people are added to the church that day. And so we get to the end of that story in Acts chapter 2 and we had this picture of the church in its infancy. And it not only captures what's happening there, but it also serves as this ultimate vision for who the church should be and can become through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Look at this picture of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all God's people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
What we see here is a picture of the early church, and we see their practices. We see their habits. We see the things that marked their daily life. And what's clear in this picture of the early church is they understood the dynamic nature of salvation. There was not only this change of status that happened from I'm a, 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 a person born into this Jewish heritage and now I am this person who believes that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah of God. This transition from a faithful Jew to a follower of Jesus, it happens. It's a, it's a change of status. They're now part of this renewed people of God. But the, the work of salvation doesn't end there. This group of people in the early church, they understood that salvation was dynamic and they were in the process of becoming more like Jesus. Something that we see in Scripture as sanctification. Where God sets you apart for a divine purpose and sends you out on mission. And that mission is so that you might be more like Jesus and point people to Him. And so what are they doing so that this process of sanctification might take root in their life. They are making these spiritual practices a daily part of their life. Luke tells us that they met together daily. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching daily. And we need to follow their example because I think we have the tendency to stop with the change of, of status. When we come to Jesus and we put our faith and, we, and our trust in Him, we go from someone who's apart from God to someone who is now a Christian. This amazing change of status happens. God gives us His gift of salvation, but we have a tendency to leave it there and to not think about the continuing work of God of making us more like Jesus. And when we make salvation just this transaction, this change of status, what we then do in terms of our Christian life, is we make Jesus the great add-on. Jesus becomes the great additive to our life or the great, the, the great condiment of our life. Jesus becomes the, 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 the spice that just makes our life just a little bit tastier, a little bit more palatable, just a, just a little, bit, little bit better. So we, we add Jesus on to our schedules and we, we just add Jesus on to some of the things we say and some of the things we do. We, we, just, we don't really change what we do. We don't really change our rhythms. We just kind of sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus. Jesus becomes the, the secret sauce, which if it tastes a little bit like Zaxby's sauce, I'd, I'd be okay with. That, that'd be cool. But Jesus becomes a so just dip our life into this sauce. Just get a little bit of Jesus. Don't really change what you're doing or change your attitude. Just dip a little, dip, dip it in Jesus, and it'll taste a little bit better, and it'll taste a little bit, a little bit better for the people around you. But that's not the gospel. That's not what we see happening in the early church. Their decision to follow Jesus and to put their faith and their trust in Jesus, it changed their daily rhythm. It changed their habits. It changed the way they ordered their lives. Every day they met together, praising God, breaking bread in one another's homes, following Jesus, changed their daily routines. And this is what I would say about our habits, friends. Is that God uses our habits as we surrender them to the Lordship of Christ. God can use our habits as means of grace to transform us into the image 
of Christ. You hear the word habit and you immediately think bad. We always talk about bad habits. But what Scripture calls us to are good habits, good routines, good rhythms that push us up towards Christ-likeness. They become means of grace infused by God's presence and His Holy Spirit that make us like Jesus. And I want to be bold today, and I want to say this is one of those sermons where it's like a mirror. You're looking in the mirror, you're taking inventory of your life. And I want to be bold and say, if you're not growing in your walk with the Lord, if, if the reflection you see you know is out of alignment with God's plan and purpose for your life, it's not that God's sanctifying and transforming grace is deficient. It is all sufficient. It is all we need. It is always available. But if you don't like the reflection in the mirror, it's most likely that the habits of your daily rhythm are not in alignment with God's purposes for your life. They are running contrary to what God wants for you. And, and, and in allowing those habits to run contrary to what God wants for you, you are resisting sanctifying and transforming grace. And so just as you made a decision to, to follow Jesus, we also have to make a decision to participate with transforming grace in our life. And that begins with bringing our habits into alignment with God. So what are the rhythms? What are the habits? What are the things that we can integrate into our regular routines that become means of grace for us? Well, let's go back to Acts 2. There are several there. And I, and I can't unpack all of those in the time we have today, but why don't we start with three? So let's draw out three. Three rhythms of grace that this early group of followers demonstrate for us. The first is the rhythm of of Bible reading. This rhythm of, of hearing the apostles' teaching. What's going on there is the, the apostles are taking the Old Testament texts and they're reinterpreting them in light of Jesus as the Messiah. And that goes on for the next 10 to 20 years as this original group of Jesus followers are writing to other churches. And look, we have the apostles' teaching miraculously preserved for us in the Bible. God's holy word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. 39 books in the Old Testament. 27 books in the New Testament. It's the story of what God has done among His people. And this story has the power to transform us if we will read it and meditate on it and make it a daily part of our life. In the book of Hebrews, it's the best theology of Scripture that I can point you to today, where the writer says, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you hear that about this Word? Man, this Word is, is dangerous. It's a double-edged sword. It penetrates joints and marrow. It cuts to our heart. It helps us parse the world and understand the world the way God would have us to understand it. But if it just sits on your shelf, and if it is never opened, or if it is only opened when you come here, it won't have near the transformative effect as if you will carve out time daily to commune and to read God's Word. 
It's so important that we do this because there are other forces in your daily rhythm and in your daily routine that want you to see the world differently. You are being shaped and formed by this constant barrage of information. And what God's Word does is it calls us back to who God is and allows us to see the world the way God wants us to see it. This became pretty clear to me in, in, a, in a season of life. It was one of those election seasons. And I was talking with a friend about something that was obviously contentious and people had lots of different views on it. And, and, and he had one view on it and, and I had another view on it. And, and we were talking about it the way those conversations are supposed to have. Over a cup of coffee, face to face. Committed to one another. We're going to be friends no matter how this conversation goes. I'm not going to defriend you if you don't like what I say or I don't like what you say. So we're having this cup of coffee and we're talking about this and I, and I enjoyed that conversation. But he gets frustrated because I'm not seeing his point of view and sort of exacerbated. He says, exasperated, he says, now where do you get your news? You watch CNN or you watch Fox? <laughs> And I want to say for the record, I don't watch either one. Because both are trying to make me angry. And both are trying to make money off of my emotions. And they, they, want, to, they want to create certain... Um, the, 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 the matter I am, the more I'm going to watch. And so uh, we, cut the cable on, we cut the cable on both of those. But, but this is just... This is exacerbated by social media algorithms that curate information for us that align with exactly what we think. You, you, whatever issue, however you see the world, you can get a stream of information that lines up 100% with that and never be challenged in any way. Consequently, you cease to grow and you cease to think about the world holistically. But friends, we're the people of God. We have a story that transcends that. The Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It brings us back to how God sees the world. And, and if we are listening to other voices and allowing other voices to form and to shape us, we will miss God's perspective. And so we, we have to make the Bible a daily part of our life. It has to be a means of grace for us. So returning to the atomic habits principle. If God's word isn't a, a daily part of your life, what's one thing you can do to get 1% better? There's a great resource. It is on your phone. It's called the Bible app. You can begin a reading plan. You can set a reminder. It'll ding your phone to tell you you haven't done it yet today. And you can pause your day or you can set it to be the first thing in your day. And you can read bite-sized portions of God's word. Maybe you establish a rule that I'm not looking at any social media. I'm not looking at any news. I'm not doing anything else until I commune with God in his word. And I read the Bible. I allow it to center me with what we know to be true. So this is a rhythm of grace for us, reading God's word. The second thing you see with the early church is they had this rhythm of worship. They gathered together they gathered together. They met in one another's homes. They established this rhythm for seeing one another and worshiping together and praising God together. 
And later in the book of Hebrews, we see the writer underscoring the importance of this. This is several years after this Pentecost moment, and apparently that regular rhythm had faded a little bit because the writer of Hebrews says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the translators of the NIV, they made day capital for us. They're saying something there. They're saying this is pointing us to the day of Christ's return, this day when Christ is going to come and make everything wrong, right with the world. So that day is coming. It's imminent. It could be tomorrow. As we anticipate it, what are we doing? What habits are we integrating into our life? And the writer of the Hebrews to the Hebrews is saying, let's not give up meeting together. Let's make this a priority in our life. The Bible knows what we know to be true, that we live in these seven-day rhythms. This is how God established it. And we live in these, these seven-day rhythms, and God set aside one day for Sabbath, one day for fellowship with God's people. One day that we can gather and we can spur one another toward, on toward love and good deeds. Some are in the habit of neglecting this. And maybe there was a time when culture protected that day for us. But friends, that day is, is over. Businesses are always going to be open on Sunday, except Chick-fil-A. Businesses are always going to be open on Sunday. There's always going to be money to be made on Sunday. There's always going to be sports to be played on Sunday. There's always going to be music events and recitals. And things are always going to happen on Sunday. We're not going back. The world is not going to help you keep spiritual rhythms. This is something the people of God have to decide to do. And in some ways it means we have to say no to otherwise good opportunities. Sometimes we have to say, no, I can't do that because it violates what I'm committing to make a regular rhythm in my life. This rhythm is important to me and it shapes and forms me to be like Jesus. And so I prioritize it in my calendar. Now, friends, please don't hear me say that you got to be here 52 out of 52 Sundays because not even I do that. I don't think any of us do that. What I'm saying is, this has to be something you prioritize. You, you, you have to make it a priority and you have to protect it the way you protect other things in your calendar. The potential for this regular gathering of God's people to form and shape you like Jesus is great. But just like God's word, if it stays on the shelf, it's of no use to us. And the same is true with our gathering together. The final rhythm that you see the early church living in is this rhythm of prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Daily they were communing with the Lord. And Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, let's just pause right there. Maybe you're saying, hey, Paul, you don't live in the 21st century. You don't know what it's like to do my job. I live in constant anxiety. Paul, you don't know what it's like to, to 
have products stuck in the Pacific Ocean and me not being able to deliver it where it's supposed to go. Paul, you don't know anxiety. You don't know what it's like to pay $4 a gallon for gas, Paul. You don't know the kind of anxiety that I have. I want to remind you, Paul wrote this from prison. He's got a platform to say this. He's learned this in his life. And so he says to the church, he says to us, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And look at this promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's why we're talking about these rhythms. That's why we're talking about these habits, because I know we're all anxious. We're all filled with with anxiety, worried about the future, worried about our finances, worried about our family. And what this rhythm of prayer does for us is it replaces this anxiety with this calm assurance and this peace that transcends all understanding. We can commune with God daily. We can know that He's there. He's present. He's in the midst of what we're going through and that we do not go through it alone. And prayer reminds you of that. Prayer syncs you up with the heart of God. And so, let's make it a part of our regular routine. Let's make it a part of our regular rhythm. As we close today, I want to say this. This is sort of like the conversation you have with a doctor, and the doctor says something about your weight, and you're like, I know, I know, I know. Or the doctor says something about some habit or some thing that's going on. And it's like when the hygienist at the dentist's office says, now, have you been flossing? And you hang your head and you say, no. This is not a place of shame. This is a place of grace. This is a place where we ask God to help us and to be with us as we allow our habits to be transformed. But it requires an honest look in the mirror and it requires us to be vulnerable and to admit that some things are out of alignment. And that's not easy for us. We don't do vulnerability real well in Bentonville. We have more MBAs in Bentonville per capita than anywhere else in the world. We have more highly effective people per capita than anywhere else in the world. We have more Enneagram type threes than anywhere else in the world. I mean, we get stuff done and we succeed and we accomplish things. And so vulnerability is not really our thing. Admitting we're wrong is not really our thing. But friends, the gospel is this. The gospel is I can't, but God can. I can't, but God has. I can't, but God always will. And so would we be so honest this morning as to say, I want to make a change. I want things to be different. I want to change some habits in my life. The worship team is going to lead us in a closing song. And what we're going to do is we're going to worship because I want you to see Jesus. I want you to think about all that Jesus has done for you. And as you think about what Jesus has done for you, I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to hear the good news.
that, that, that I can't, but God can. And so what habits, what regular rhythms are a part of your life that are out of alignment? What needs to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? And what small changes can you make? How can you feast daily on God's Word? How can you protect the weekly rhythm of God's people gathering together in worship? How can you spend time with God in prayer?